Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and welcome to Season 8 of Classic Camera Revival. And as we head into the dark months of January, it seems like a great time to sit down and enjoy some television and some movies. So today we have a series of TV shows, movies, documentaries, fiction, nonfiction, even a little bit of anime thrown in to give you an idea of what to watch in your new year. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. All right, so as easy as it is to talk about cameras and gear and film and photography technique, there is plenty of other media out there that is related to or has some sort of photographic connection. I know there are some great TV shows out there and some movies that have a huge photography connection. So today we are going to be talking about some of our favorites and our choices, a little bit of about the plot, what we like about it, what we dislike about it. And to kick it off, let's start with Bill and Blow Up. Thank you, Alex. And again, Happy New Year, everyone. Blow Up. I've been aware of Blow Up as a movie for a very long time. I first saw it, I want to say my either very late teens or very early 20s when I was in university around 1989, 1990. Uh, TVO had it on, I think, like a Saturday night at the movies, which is a, a public broadcasting station here in uh, Ontario, Canada. And uh, just to give a quick Cole's notes on the movie itself, it was uh, the story and direction was done by Michelangelo Antonellini. This was his first English language movie. It was produced by Carlo Ponti. It is set in 1966 Mod London with David Hemmings playing the protagonist, a sort of a fine art slash fashion photographer who runs in some very chic circles. He's sort of, you first meet him, he's sort of coming out of a flop house in the morning. And he was sort of documenting homeless men of a certain age. And, you know, the classic, you know, seeing, seeing the grittier side of London that's post-World War, you know, a couple decades out post-World War II London. But then you see it all of a sudden pivot. He goes to his really groovy studio in the West End. And then he's doing a fashion shoot. And again, he was also, uh, he had... Uh, you know, you had a whole bunch of people in there, including Jane Birkin, uh, Verushka von Lederhoff as herself, Jillian Hills, uh, Susan Miles, and of course, uh, Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, we'll get to her in a sec. So David Hemmings plays as photographer loosely, perhaps, maybe, perhaps, kind of, sort of, if you squint, maybe based on David Bailey. So the photographer, he's done really well for himself. He's driving a Bentley convertible in London in the 60s. He's hanging out with models. He's got it going on. He's got this studio set up that could make James Lee, you know, make him hot under the collar uh, with a Hasselblad 500C with a stove, sort of stovepipe viewfinder, uh, the whole nine yards. And so he goes out one afternoon in the Bentley. He's got a Nikon F with him and he goes to a park and he see, he puts on his telephoto lens and he sees a couple that's, you know, there and he takes some pictures and, you know, the woman's a little upset. Oh, I want that film. I really need that film. I want that film now. You can't take that photo, blah, blah, blah. So the photographer, okay, here's a roll of film. 
go away. Thought about the film was, who cares? So he goes back to the studio, he starts processing the film, and he, he starts inspecting it, then starts printing it. And then he notices, uh-oh, this is not everything we see. Yeah, the couple is there, but are they really a couple? Because then he starts, then he sees something off in the corner of a print, that's so he enlarges further. And then he sees, oh, a dead body. So he goes back to the park. Yeah, the body's still there. Goes back to his studio. Vanessa Redgrave, the woman in the couple, was there. She really wants the negatives. They fool around a bit. And then they go to this show that's uh, the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck and a very young, pre-Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. So things are going on there. A lot of chaos. And Hemmings character, the sort of David Bailey, goes back to his studio slash flat. It's their loft. Place is trashed. Uh, the negatives from that day are all gone, as are the prints, except for one. Then he goes back to the park. The body's gone. Then he winds up at a party and just gets, and it just sort of ends on that sort of weird note going, it's all ephemeral. And again, I sort of got into this film before I was a photographer, because again, it was sort of like the late 80s, early 90s, around the same time. Uh, Brit pop was coming along. You had the Manchester scene with the Stone Roses, the Charlatans UK, and Blur, and late, a little bit later on Oasis, and that was the sort of scene that I was into musically. So that film really spoke to me at the time. Now again, I saw it years later. It's putting a photographer's lens on it, and you see all this cool gear being used in that time period, and it's like, oh, here's a guy who's really got it going on as. You know, a fashion photographer in London, he's doing really well for himself, which these days, I don't know if fashion photographers are driving around in Bentleys, most likely not. Uh, they're taking the subway like the rest of us. But at the point in time, it was a really, it was a fun film. I haven't seen it on screen lately, which is a shame. I don't know where you would go for that. Probably some digging on a couple of streaming services. You might be able to find it. A couple of fun facts other than the Yardbirds contributing to a song to the uh, soundtrack. The soundtrack was also composed by Herbie Hancock, the title tune Blow Up, which again, um, I'm a huge fan of that artist as well. So it kind of scratches both my photography and music fan centers in my brain for this film. And I, I highly recommend it if you can find it. So actually when it comes to the uh, photography aspects of it, how accurate would you rate it? I'd say about, well, I'd say about a seven, seven and a half. Okay. Nice. Out of 10. Like, uh, let's be real. Like the actor is not a photographer. So chances are he's not holding his Nikon quite correctly, but it's like, Hey, yeah. Okay. You know, this is fiction. This is a movie. It's the 1960s. They're not quite as accurate as you would say now. And again, you know, these days, even a top tier fashion photographer, I'm not sure I'd see one in a brand spanking new Bentley convertible. I unlikely this day and age nice yeah if they're doing really well like just no i don't see one yeah you never know you never know probably not a bentley but at least a bmw oh yeah and um keeping on sort of the uh thriller mystery creepy factor james you have the late great robin williams and one hour photo Yes, and, and creepy would probably be its best one-word uh, description, this uh, this film. I'm not sure how many of you out there have actually seen it. Those that, that have seen it 
certainly understand where the word creepy comes from and definitely not your typical Robin Williams type of performance in this movie at all. Um, It is pretty much the antithesis of what you have come to expect from his comedic abilities. But a little bit about the film. It's set basically in a a clone of a Walmart store called Save More, I believe, or Save Mart or something like that, where he is the lab tech at the one-hour photo booth that they have inside of the store. The story takes place in in the early 2000s. It came out in 2002, so let's just assume it's around around that time. And he is essentially a loner that works uh, in the lab. He's, you know, very, very picky about the... Uh, lab equipment and its configuration and setting. So featured in the film um, are essentially two cameras and one really cool thing, an Agfa mini lab. And in one of the scenes, he uh, he basically, well, essentially, frankly, loses his shit on the Agfa tech because the cyan is three increments off whatever setting it would call for in the lab. And he's very, very picky about the accuracy of his color rendering in this lab. And he basically loses it. And uh, really what the film is, is really showing you is, is how he's so attached in this world of photography um, and photographs uh, more so than photography. And it's really kind of symbolizing how lonely he is in, in, real, in the real world and possibly how, how awkward he is. And you really get this feeling he had a somewhat of a traumatic childhood perhaps wasn't loved by his parents or perhaps abandoned by his parents at some point. And what happens with his characters, this character's name is Seymour Parrish or Cy Parrish, a.k.a. Cy the Photo Guy. And basically uh, what happens with him is he becomes obsessed uh, with a family, with a mother and son that uh, are usual customers and and bring in their photographs to be uh, developed. So he has this window working in a lab tech. And those who ever worked in a lab, you know, you can see the intimate details of people's lives. It's almost like um, a precursor to Instagram uh, today, you know, and it, it's one of those sort of things where we tend to just display what we want people to see. People don't actually see your real life. So Robin Williams, as this character, is seeing all of these amazing photographs, loving family, birthday parties, kids smiling, happy family, perfect life you know, white picket fence kind of thing in these photographs. And then what happens is he finds out that the husband of this family is cheating on his wife because the girlfriend or mistress also brings her film in to get developed. So he connects the dots and being this sort of lonely protector and and why, and it's never stated in the movie, but I think he went through some of some similar trauma, the character did uh, in his family being completely dysfunctional. So what's happened is uh, he's now viewing himself as a protector of this family. So he ends up stalking them and then basically outs the husband, breaks into their house, gets fired from his job. Like it's just it just goes nuts. But one of the things and you really do have to watch it. It's a rather complex story. So I definitely recommend that you watch it. And some things to note when you're watching it is uh, the scenes with Sai alone. It's very, very monochromatic. So everything, and, and I don't mean black and white, I mean monochromatic is in singular color. And every time Psy is placed in a solo scene, everything is sterile. It's like white. It's almost like he's in a hospital. 
or uh, some, you know, some type of uh, psychiatric ward or something like that. So the cinematography is very symbolic and, and it's really, really cool. So if you're an artist, if you're into, um, you know, setting up a scene and you can actually learn a lot uh, as far as when you're creating images and how to tell stories from just from the cinematography. I really, I got that um, the, about the second time I watched it. I was like, wow, every time they show this guy, He's like in this vacuum of sterility and which is just representative. It's not, it's not representing sterility. It's representing loneliness and how lonely he is and how abandoned he feels by the world. You know, just really like the, the, just the overall sort of pathetic feel that you get for this character is heartbreaking. But aside from that, the two cameras that are featured in this film are both Malaikas or Minolta slash Leicas. So the Leica Mini Lux is one of the cameras featured in the film. It's not used that much, but um, definitely accurate representation of the camera, and which actually belongs to the Yorkin family. So this is your white picket fence family. And of course, Cy being the loner, he has the lesser younger brother of the Leica Mini Lux, which was the Minolta Freedom Zoom 150, uh, which is um, basically, a, they're both point and shoot 35 millimeter cameras. Obviously, the Leica Minilux is uh, the higher-end camera of the two. The, the Minolta Freedom Zoom 150 was your basic late 90s travel, everyday, every man's camera, every man and woman's family, the family camera, you know, probably cost a couple hundred bucks. If you lost it, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a big deal. Um, I think my family had one of those. Oh, there you go. So yeah, I think my I, we probably had the Olympus version of that camera more than likely my family did. So it is a, a cinematographer slash photographer's kind of movie. If you like the geekiness of the, the the working in the film lab and sort of the, you know, I guess sort of commentary on what life is like today when you look at Instagram and what people take or what people, I shouldn't say what people take pictures of, what kind of pictures people share. So if you look at what's, what people actually put out versus what's actually going on behind their closed doors, it's a very, very good uh, commentary on that. So definitely worth a watch. You know, the camera stuff is cool, but it's not really heavy on the, uh, on the actual camera stuff. But it's heavy on the photography and the cinematography, though. Nice. Nice. All right. So moving out of fiction for a while and going into nonfiction. John, or photographer. Okay, thanks, Alex. I'm going to talk about my favorite photography-related movie of all time, and it's the documentary War Photographer. And it's about the American war photographer, strangely enough, uh, James Knoxway, who uh, is pretty famous in his field. I think it's considered one of the uh, one of the best of his time. And this this video, or sorry, this film, it came out in. Uh, in 2001 so it's 20 years old and one of the things really interesting about this is um is how different the technology was back then he was still film based i think at, at that point 2001 a lot of uh, photographers had not made the move yet like the pro photojournalists had not made the move to uh, to digital yet so he's shooting canon i'm not a canon guy so i don't know what the high-end canon models uh, 35 millimeter SLR would have been uh, 20 years ago, but he's using them. 
And what's really interesting is, uh, and you have to, again, this is 20 years ago. We look at a camera like a GoPro today, which they're, you know, cheapest chips, they're ubiquitous. What they did back in uh, 2001 for this movie was, and this is pre GoPro days, is put some kind of little camera on top of or next to the pentaprism on the uh, the gear that uh, that James Nogwe was using. So you got the bird's eye view as he's going around shooting war scenes. And so he's not so much shooting combat, he's shooting the aftermath. So like he's walking around uh, burned out villages in the Balkan Wars, or he's also in, uh, in the Middle East. And he'd shoot his stuff. Um, and then you'd see him with a Sharpie marking down, you know, writing on top of the canisters, what uh, the scene, what was on that roll. Then you'd see him working with uh, the contact sheets. And so apart from everything else in this film, I find this film sort of poignant because that's not the way they do it anymore. Uh, it's all digital and, and heck, a lot, of, uh, a lot of media, they don't even hire photographers anymore. They just expect people to, to, to crowdsource their shots from, uh, from the smartphones. So, so that part of it, like a real window on what, uh, on what it used to be like. But the main part of the film for me is how the uh, the filmmaker captured the humanity of James Noctway. He's a very, very quiet, private person. And here he is shooting scenes of unimaginable horror, but you can just hear the and see the empathy coming out of him. This is a man who cared deeply about what he was seeing. And he just didn't like he just didn't see the, the victims of war as great. This shot will make me a million dollars. He really, really cared about uh, what he was seeing. And there's a, one of the scenes or a couple of scenes in the in the movie that uh, I think really bring this out is they they cut from him shooting in the field to uh, I guess it's the editorial office of one of the uh, the German photo magazines that were big in the time. And so you have like the editor and a couple of other uh, you know editorial assistants, and they're sort of moving the pictures around on a on a sort of like a, a whiteboard or something like that. So, you know, we'll have this picture here, or maybe, you know, this one's better. And you can just tell that they have coldly reduced what Nakwe was shooting into, you know, a bunch of pictures. And they did, interv- they did interview these people, and they were sort of saying all sorts of, you know, really complimentary things about uh, James Nakwe. But you could tell that he was on one level when it comes to understanding what he was shooting and that the uh, people who worked at the magazine were uh, were not. And one thing I like about the uh, the movie is there's not a whole lot of narration. In fact, there are huge chunks of the of the movie where it's just basically you're seeing Notway going around and doing his job shooting and there is absolutely no talking. And it's it really it becomes really really immersive. And there's there's one scene that's a bit uh, a bit poignant. He's talking about when do war photographers tend to die? or get killed. And he said, oh, basically they either get killed on their first assignment or when uh, they've been around too long and they start to think they're immortal. Now, Nachtwe was not killed, but uh, in about 2015, I think it was, uh, he was uh, rather badly injured from a grenade, uh, but he he did survive. So maybe just to, to sum it up, if you want to see a window into how photojournalism used to be done in the age of film, and a window into what kind of special, special man 
that James Noctway was, I cannot recommend War Photographer enough. Now, it's hard to find. I think in the US, it streams on a, on a, in a uh, platform called Canopy. Uh, Canopy in Canada does not have it. I actually bought the DVD many years ago. But this movie is so good that I would recommend it. It's worth buying the DVD. So like I said, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'll definitely check that one out. I'm a big fan of Robert Kappa and his almost over-the-top storytelling. And um, again, I feel he falls into the category of one who thought himself immortal. Agreed. Yeah, mm. definitely. And I, yeah, you've definitely piqued my interest there, John, for sure. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I have the DVD, so any of you have DVD players and want to borrow it, uh, the line forms to the left. <laughs> First. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, hey, you... you and the nice thing is... Has it, it's 10 minutes away from my house, so... Bingo. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Chrissy, you, of course, have something related to uh, Instant Photographer on your watch list. Hey, what? I thought we were talking about Squid Games today. No? <laughs> No, um, I watched a movie on this platform called Netflix called The B-Side. It's categorized as like a documentary of like the life of this phenomenal woman who I'd actually never even heard of until like earlier this year uh, named Elsa Dorfman, who is this Massachusetts photographer who somehow found a way to specialize in like large format portrait photography specifically on like polaroid film using a 20 by 24 camera and just kind of like talking a little bit about the movie it's uh it's like a it like loosely goes through like her life but not really in a chronological order how it kind of happens and the thing i kind of like about the documentary format is that it was almost as if you're sitting at a table with somebody and they're just like going through like a box of photos and you're just sitting in her studio and she just goes through these boxes of photos and she's just telling you about oh this is the time that I did such a such a thing and it was like this very like loving like kind of like a love letter to also Dorfman and just like the wonderful work that she did so when she first started out she was uh in New York City and she was doing all these like kind of black and white photos uh taking photos of these like friends that she had named I don't know Allen Ginsberg and like Bob Dylan, whoever these guys are. I don't know who these guys are. Nobody but then it just like, <laughs> and then instead of being like kind of like in that starstruckness of like, oh, this is Allen Ginsberg and this is Bob Dylan, she's like, oh, this is just my friend. I took a photo of my friend and this is just him like having fun between sets. And I just think that that mentality is just like very beautiful. And then she talked about kind of like the life of how like she kind of got into it. She didn't even start taking photos till she was like 28. And she somehow miraculously heard about this uh, camera that Polaroid was developing. It was like a 20 by 24 large format camera that they only made like five or six in the world. And through what she calls like nagging people, she found a way to like rent one of these cameras. And then you just, she kind of just talks about how she like fell in love with like the format and how everything that she took a photo of was just this super like realistic, super like, like in your face, like life sized portraits. And it's just like this very beautiful story. Uh, like I said, in the beginning, what she kind of does and how the, the format of the documentary is, she just kind of goes through these like drawers and these like booklets of just like photos that she's taken. And the reason why the, 
the documentary is called The B-Side is because in order for her to get this camera, in order for her to convince Polaroid that she was, for lack of a better word, like worthy of having one of these six cameras, she had to prove to them that like, oh, yes, I have a space for it because these are giant cameras that will never like leave the building. So I have a space for it. These are the things I can do for it. I can totally like rent it out and, and pay for it. And what she did, she got a space for it. She found a space for it. She got the camera. She rented it out. And she took these giant like 20 by 24 Polaroid portraits of people. And so when she does this, she takes two of them. So one goes to the client and then she keeps the, the other one. So she calls the other one, the rejected photo, like her B side, because like kind of like in music, there's an A side and a B side. And I just think that, which is like kind of like, like genius in a sense. So she just goes through all these photos because 20 by 24 film is so large and it's so expensive. She's like, I'm not going to throw these out. And so you just see her going through all these photos and just like her reminiscing about the process of it and like taking the, what happened was just taking the photos and like her kind of her mindset about it. She talked about in the middle of it, how the thing that she likes about pictures is that kind of like, going back to what James was saying that like, you know, pictures aren't really real <laughs> in a sense, because you could take 20 photos in two minutes and they, they will never be like the exact same ever. And so I just thought that was like very beautiful. And the fact that she also says that the thing that she liked about these like rejects is that they show all these like kind of flaws in people, but the flaws are also just what makes a person like very unique and like individual. And so I think of it as like this like love letter to Elsa Dorfman and like the work that she did and just like her philosophy of just like making like taking photos of people and making them like happy and showing like the happier side of things the positive side of things and maybe I just liked it really liked it because in these times I could use a little bit of happiness maybe I just really liked it because you know Polaroids are just very beautiful but uh in a way, I would just say that this photographer was just very, like, brilliant and, like, a genius in her own way. And I find it very interesting that I never even heard about her until, I think, maybe, like, like maybe about a year ago when either Brandy or Danielle, or maybe it was even Jess, told me that I should watch this movie. And then I put it off until now. So, but yeah, the no, camera su- that... Sorry, go ahead, James. No, no, I'm surprised. I'm surprised you... This is the first time you're watching this. Yeah, I, I kind of put it off for a really long time. <laughs> I, I don't really know. I, I didn't know what to expect about it. And then like when I started looking more into it, apparently they, they filmed it or they debuted it at, or not debuted, but they, they had a showing of it at TIFF as yeah. well, which also makes me think was kind of interesting because I know for not in that year, but like one of the years after that, there's a person that was also taking like these like large format Polaroid photos of like the actors at TIFF. And that just made me think about that as well. I was like, well, if, was that like an influence of like from this movie and like this this photographer but like I don't know I thought it was I thought it was very interesting <laughs> just like she's also just like a very humble person you know yeah. didn't pick up a camera until she was like 28 apparently the camera that she was like given to try out was like a Hasselblad and the person very smartly the photographer was very smart and it didn't like hype up what the camera was like oh here's a camera give it a try and see will not you like it so I thought that was like very very interesting and just like very clever because I find a lot of the times, even like myself, you get very wrapped up over like the brand or the name of a camera. It's like, oh, that's this is a Leica, this is a Hasselblad. But you know, she. I never do that personally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't own a bunch of. Polaroids. I'm a Nikon fan. What? No. 
but yeah, no, just like very humble beginnings. And even like throughout the entire documentary, she always talks about how she felt very lucky to have had the life that she had, was able to have as an artist, just as a person like living in this world. And I just think it was like a beautiful like love letter to her, to her work, to her, to her life. And you could see it in the photos that she took. You could see it in like the photos that she showed was like, like I said, they're her B-sides, they were the rejects. But you still see all this like, for lack of a better word, like optimism and like love, very like family oriented, very like, like, like happy photos. So yeah. I saw it a couple years ago, and I agree with you on pretty much everything. One of the things that struck me about her images is just the honesty of the of the portraiture. My portraiture style is a little bit more contrived. Like I like to kind of kick it up a notch and, you know, work on lighting techniques and stuff like that. Whereas hers is just like, there's just a genuine, like a feeling of just, you know, just being like the genuine people are there. And they're just like, they're, I would best describe it as like the most honest type of photography that I've seen in a long time. Like her work is like, you you look at it and at first glance, you're kind of like, eh, okay. But then you, you keep looking at it and then you see the people for who they are in that like just honest sort of happy state. And it's, it's uplifting to like, just say, Hey, those are real people getting photographs. And especially when you look at some of her more like celebrity category kind of people, and then you're like, wow, that's the real deal. Like those are people like how they are very reminiscent of Annie Leibovitz and, and her series, like with uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and that sort of thing, like people in their natural state and that natural state, it's, there seems to be like consistency of happiness, but like, that's what the photographer has created that environment for you to just be who you are and be comfortable so that is not something you can learn that's that's something you're born with and i thought it was a great documentary so i'm glad you enjoyed it too and now i have to watch that one too it's, yeah. it's very like like james said it's very uplifting um there's a quote that she had that i wrote down well i wrote down a lot of different quotes but the one that she said is i'm interested in the surfaces of people i'm totally not interested in capturing their soul i'm only interested in how they seem oh. and I think that that's a very interesting quote because you always hear about people. I even say it too sometimes. Like, oh, I want to make sure I like capture like the soul of how a person yeah. feels. And even there was like um, a series where a person, there's six photographers taking pictures of one person, and like, how do the photographers uh, capture that one person? And they're like, oh, well, I'm trying to capture like the soul of who he is. Yeah. And then you just have Elsa Dorfman is like, oh, I don't really care about that. I just want to take a picture of what they look like. Yeah. But and, and isn't it ironic that she is actually capturing the souls of those people more so than and 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 I 100%. think the, the biggest irony there is, and it's something that I I, you know, you know, my style is completely different. Like I get too cerebral when it comes to portraiture, but like, you know, she's just it's like, yeah, there it is. There they are. You know, and just like watching, like watching her actually execute a shoot is like it really can be that simple mm, and the yeah, like absolutely. it's just an honest capture of who people are or you know what they were feeling in that moment when she so you know it's a lot of things knowing when to push that button and i guess you have to get good at that because like you know you're shooting one of six cameras in the world <laughs> And, uh, you know, one sheet, and I don't even think, does I don't even know if Impossible makes it for her anymore. I don't, I don't think so. No, they don't. I've yeah. only ever seen, the largest I've ever seen in Polaroid is 8x10. 
And that was with um, Matt Mirage. Mm. And even then, the failure rate was just nuts. Yeah. I know that. I'm going to say recently, but I think it was like a few months ago, um, Dan from In an Instant, he had an opportunity to go to New York to take, uh, to, to play with like a, a 20 by 24 because I think it was, I want to say Camerodactyl, yeah. uh, like 3D printed like the parts for uh, a 20 by 24. They took all these like phenomenal photos of like people and even watching like uh, this documentary, the B side, and then like kind of watching like the YouTube video that that Ben did, of like him and like the excitement that he felt being able to shoot such like a large format and to try it out, you could see like a similar excitement, and you see like a similar, similar like this is like a very rare opportunity, and so I I kind of like that. So I think there are still cameras out there, but like whether or not they're in use right now, I I think there's like the one when I that when I was like looking into it, like doing the research, is the one that's like in Vienna from like SuperSense because I think SuperSense is the one that still does like the the one off like sheets. Yeah, I think so. But uh, yeah, they're they're, like, they're definitely, definitely rare these days. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool movie. Highly recommended. I second awesome. that. Yeah. So Jess, you have a good one as well. Life, which deals with uh, the relationship between Dennis Stock and uh, James Dean. Yeah. So that movie came out in 2015, and Robert Pattinson plays uh, Dennis Stock, and Dane DeHaan plays uh, James Dean. So it's kind of um, I guess like a romanticized version of their relationship. Um, but the movie is set back in uh, 1955. So it's about seven months before James Dean died in the car accident. And it was just after the two of them met at a Hollywood party. And uh, Dennis was invited to the uh, East of Eden premiere by James Dean. And so he was like, "Okay, well, I don't know the guy and I don't really know the movie, but I'll go check it out. And after watching that movie, he said, wow, this guy has the potential like he has star potential. I have to do a photo essay on him. So he convinced his boss at Magnum to let him do this. And it's funny because it starts off where he's talking to his boss and he's saying, you know, it's it's hard for us to get the good jobs. All the good ones go to Elliot Erwitt. The rest of us are stuck doing like the red carpet stuff and everything. And so, you know, you can kind of still see some sort of similarities to today. Starting off, you're always stuck with like the crappier jobs, we'll say, you know, as you build your portfolio and make your name and everything. But anyways, what was really fun, though, was seeing like the red carpet scenes in the movie because everyone had like the press cameras and the rolly flexes. And I was like, oh, like the photo geek in me was just freaking out over those. But yeah, so anyways, it goes through their friendship together. And Dennis was invited by James to his farm in um, I want to say Indiana, but I can't remember right now, somewhere in the Midwest anyways. And as it turns out, it was Dean's last time actually going back to his childhood home, the farm that he was that he grew up on, you know, before he passed away. And so what Dennis Stock got was a portfolio of just amazingly intimate photos that no one else got of James Dean. Like these, if he hadn't been there, if he hadn't made friends with this guy these photos would not have existed. Um, there were some really good ones of him on the farm, uh, him going to like a 50s sock hop that he was invited to by some high school students. 
um, just because he was alumni. So I thought that was really neat. And they visited like jazz clubs and, and things like that too, which was very much of the era. And one thing that I really enjoyed was that he had two Leicas. So he had a Leica 3F, which was what they kind of all had at the time. And the M3 had just come out in 1954. So he had the brand new M3. The only thing that I found inconsistent in the movie was that this was set in 55 and he was using a single stroke M3 and the single stroke only came out in 58. But anyways, <laughs> that's just a tiny little, little tidbit. That's but it, there was a really, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> but um, there's this really poignant scene where he's going to pick up a camera before going down and photographing James Dean. And he's up in his bedroom and the two cameras are on his dresser and he's holding the M3 and he's looking at it and he looks back at the 3F and then he just walks away and you just see the 3F all by itself on the dresser, all sad and alone. <laughs> that's, that's just me projecting like human emotions onto an inanimate object, but I feel like it was very sad at being left behind. Um, there were two quotes that really stuck out of my mind. James Dean asked... Um, Dennis Stock, why he started doing photography. And what he said was, everyone wants a record of themselves. And photography is a good way of saying, I've been here, you've been here. And I just think that those are really, you know, still true to this day kind of statements, you know, like whether you do like to be photographed or not, um, I think that everyone does want a record of themselves, you know, who hasn't scribbled Jess was here or Bill was here or, you know, <laughs> anywhere, uh, even if it's just like numerous abandoned buildings. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, or like a Sharpie in a bathroom stall uh, in university or whatever. We've all done something to say that we were here in this place. I have no uh, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I was a good Christian girl, Jess. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. <laughs> Sarcasm detector on 12 right now. I mean, I'll be honest, I, guilty as charged. <laughs> I refuse to incriminate myself. No paper trail, right, Woo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't leave a paper trail. That's why I learned watching Carol, which is the other movie I was debating doing. But it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's it. So I, you know, I thought that those were like just really interesting ideas is like even for myself being in front of the camera was totally different from being behind the camera and for the longest time I mean other than like when I was growing up of course my parents took photos of me although usually my dad's photography would chop one of our heads off or half a face or <laughs> something like that uh, so I didn't get my skills from him but <laughs> uh, you know like other than that the only other person that really ever took photos of me that I let for a long time was Jody. I just wasn't comfortable in front of the camera. And then through working with him and doing my YouTube channel and even turning the camera on myself and actually working through a self-portrait project, you know, I can absolutely say everyone wants a record of themselves. Everyone wants to know they were here at some point. But yeah, I, I just thought that the movie was, it was just such a lovely, quiet little movie. It wasn't weird or creepy or scary. I mean, it was sad in the sense that you knew James Dean died. Uh, so, you know, you know that going into it. So you can, you feel like you're watching the last days of 
him, you know, even though he still had a few months to go and everything, he, he could feel it when he was on his family farm, he knew it was his last time. And you can see that reflected in the photos that were taken. And even stock himself said afterwards that Dean 100% knew he wasn't going back because New York was his life at that point. Anyways, not so much that he knew he was going to die, but just he knew everything was going to change after rebel without a cause was going to come out. He knew everything was going to be completely different. So, yeah. Oh, and uh, you can get it on DVD, but it's a little difficult to find. I think I had to get it off of eBay, but it's a great movie. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to check that one out also. All right. Guess that leaves me and a bit of a nerd alert, but uh, the uh, series that I have is actually anime. Nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially what I was, I was looking for something that would allow me to be able to photograph conventions while still being able to cosplay at them. And the trouble is is that there's not that much in the way of anime and photography. So I turned to a mutual friend of Chrissy and mine, um, Sarah Burt, to uh, give me a couple of suggestions. The first one she suggested to me was a series called Speed Grapher, but it's really weird and has a bit of like sexual fetishism and just turned me off right from the get-go. The second one is um, a series from the 1980s, and it definitely shows in the storyline and the artwork called Area 88. So the main story of Area 88 um, involves a mercenary air force in a fictional Middle Eastern country where basically these pilots sign up and are put on contract and have to raise the funds to pay off and be released from said contract. So into this is a former war photographer, as most photographers and animes are, Makoto Shinjo, who is sent to this um, the titular Area 88 to document the sole Japanese pilot in this mercenary air force. So very much Top Gun, but what was really cool is that The photographer actually uses the Nikon F3, which at the time I was watching it was one of my favorite cameras. And they did a really good job with this. They used the correct shutter sound, the correct motor drive sound, the uh, MD4. So very, very iconic, about as iconic as the uh, Canon Squeal. And even has price gouging from uh, for uh, purchasing Kodak Tri-X. So very modern these days. Again, it's it's really niche. It's not really for everyone, but it's definitely one that if you do like that particular era of anime, it's definitely worth watching. You can actually find the original OVA on YouTube complete. I have the 2004 re-release on DVD, so it updates the artwork a little bit. But you get some great old school 80s jet aircraft, very Top Gun feel. Plus, the photography is just really accurately portrayed, complete with accidentally leaving all his film out in the hot desert sun, and he has to go and buy all this new film. And you know what? I kind of get why he's using Tri-X, but really in a hot desert environment, I would probably go with Plus X. You can still get the same shutter speed. 
It's interesting that uh, you know both you, Alex, and you, Jess. Uh, the films that you've talked about sound like they're pretty accurate, but uh, there have been some memorable screw ups. Like, uh, I'm just going to throw one in because I can't resist. I forget the name of it, but there's something that was on Netflix not that long ago, sort of like a fantasy thriller kind of thing. And they have a scene where a character is uh, holding up. She's got a a Barnack Leica, you know, a three something. It looks like <laughs> to her eye. And then, okay, so let's show what she's looking at. And then you see on the screen as she's looking at the Barnack Leica, a ground glass with a center microprism. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Oh, dudes. No. And, and when I was watching that, I was just imagining, okay, everywhere that a film photographer is watching this, they are now screaming and howling in pain because that Definitely. was pretty bad. I remember uh, what you're talking about. I, I can't remember the name of the movie. I, I, we've talked about this before, not on the podcast, but probably over some beers, I think. Oh, yeah. Using technical language to describe their ability. Yes. <laughs> I got a story for everyone. Back around 2008, 2009, everyone remember the Bang Bang Club? Yes. Well, shooting was done in South Africa, but the sound effects was done in Toronto. A friend of my brother from high school, he basically is a Foley artist. So he sort of was working with a house for a bunch of years doing sound effects for movies, TV, and that sort of thing. So he went out on his own, built his own sort of storefront studio and sound recording. And he wound up with the Bang Bang Club. So he needed the sound effects for a bunch of Nikons, like R4, R6. And it was just like, he sort of put a call out and I saw it on Facebook. Anyone got these? My brother says, yeah, I got all these. So it was my brother's cameras that provided the sound effects. For the That's pretty cool. Movie. That's oh, amazing. Nice. That's accurate. Sadly though, oh, my, my brother did sell his Leica R system and he regrets it to this day. <laughs> yeah, interesting yeah because i i think it was uh i i actually watched that movie in preparation because i was uh i it was between um bang bang club and uh one hour photo that i was going to talk about so i watched both actually this week um bang bang club streams on the cbc for anybody that's interested um oh, nice. charge and uh yeah because i think it was the character zhao who was i think he was the like the top dog talent wise in that group mm -hmm. and he, he mm -hmm. was the like a guy right and i know there was um there was a couple f's in there yeah. photomic uh, ftns and i think the main character that was played by ryan Philippi, he um what was he shooting he he started off with some junky stuff and then he made some money sold a couple of shots and then i think picked up a couple fe's or fm2s maybe with uh, yeah, probably yeah, 35 F2s. With, um, yeah, I think he was shooting with an FM2. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So very, um, you know, I can't comment on the sound effects that were used, but but certainly the cameras that were used were, were true to the time. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Another one to check out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's a good movie. Yeah. Highly. Um, it's a photographer's movie, especially nice. a photojournalist's movie for sure. And if you're into that sort of thing, so, um, and of course, if you're into history as well, so, and not oh. so distant history. So. And it's definitely up my alley. Yeah. Highly recommend that movie too. I, I liked it. Nice. 
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Hopefully we gave you a handful of suggestions, if not more, to get out there and explore a ton of amazing content, both fictional and non-fictional. Until next time, my name's Alex Lokes. And remember, photography is neither hardcore or underground unless you're in the jungles of Vietnam, in which case, don't step on a landmine. This is James Lee and Alex, you open the door. So apparently photography is what, softcore? I'm just gonna, this is Bill Smith. I'm just gonna stay on the uh, time-honored Robert Kappa. Your your photos crop, then you're not close enough. But then again, hearken to Alex. Don't step on that landmine. <laughs> I'm Chris. Uh, I can't follow any of you guys. Thanks for that. I guess I'm a little rusty right now. But I will see you guys later, uh, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Uh, I'm Jess Hobbs, and I'm always following all you, so I'm just gonna say, I don't know, watch some good movies, have some good times, pick up some fun cameras, and have fun out there. This is John Meadows. Moving pictures, did you think the sprockets were for decoration? <laughs> ah.